The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. And in these final chapters, God pulls back the the curtain on the world events just long enough for Daniel to get a glimpse of what was and what is and what is to come. And these chapters sweep across the the history of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the Greek Empire, Rome, and even the future reign of the Antichrist. But it's all meant to show us that God rules and that he will win in the end. And that's something that we can rejoice in. That God is the most high ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whom he wishes. But we've also been reminded in the final chapters that that God is also intending something that's much more personal and compassionate. Uh, We've also learned that God was ministering to Daniel in personal ways to lift the burden that he carried on his heart for his people. That's who Daniel was mourning over. He was fasting over them in chapter 10 and verse 2. It's also what the angel uh, specifically indicated. uh, He was uh, addressing in uh, chapter 10 and verse 14, where he says, now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Daniel was burdened for his people. That's why he came to God. That's why he refused to eat for weeks Because he carried this burden for the people of God. So what we find in chapters 10 to 12 is really an answer to Daniel's burden for his people Israel. And what was it that Daniel saw that disturbed him so much about Israel? Daniel saw people who were released from captivity, but they were not yet released from their oppression. They were persecuted. They were oppressed. Their work on the temple was being frustrated. The temple work was being frustrated. They were considered a reproach among the the people, and the people of Israel were discouraged. They were downcast, many of them disinterested in the work of God. And that's the context of this prophecy. And through tears, Daniel is asking the question, what is going to happen to my people? What's going to happen to these, your people? It's a prophecy about Israel. But in the answer to to Daniel's uh, question, uh, there's a general and accessible truth that we can all benefit from, and I'm excited to see what the Lord has to teach us through the rest of this prophecy. So let's take a look at Daniel chapter 12, and I'll start at verse 1. Daniel chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone, who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time, Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. One said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen, 
who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand, so I said, my Lord, what will become, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and detains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And Father, we are grateful for this, your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. And even today, as we really set up this chapter for further study, Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to place these things in a proper context. Father, I pray that you would help us to apply these things to our lives. All of your word is given to us for our instruction, for our reproof, for our correction in righteousness, Father. Father, we pray that you would help us to grow by what we even discover today. My Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You find here Daniel uh, really praying, fasting, mourning over his people. And uh, when he talks about his people, what he's speaking about is the, the people of Israel, the children of Israel. When the Bible speaks about the church, now the Bible actually speaks about the church as a new man that's distinct from Israel. In the, the book of Ephesians where uh, Paul speaks about how Jesus creates peace uh, between Jew and Gentile. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2 in verses uh, 14 to 15. He says, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. He doesn't speak about the, the church as if God is merely adding the, the Gentiles to Israel, the, the church to Israel. He doesn't say that Israel is expanding and gaining new recruits. Rather, what he says is that there's going to be one new man, something that is distinct. That's what he talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. In a similar way, when uh, Paul speaks about the church, he speaks about the church as a mystery, something that was previously hidden but has now been made known. When Paul uses the, the word mystery in Ephesians chapter 3, he gives us a definition of the church in Ephesians 3 and verse 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, uh, referring to the church, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then in the book of, of Acts, we're told that the church is a, a, a new spiritual baby born by the Spirit of God. On the day of Pentecost, it was a, it was a new birth. It was born new. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus told his disciples, uh, he says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, speaking about the day of Pentecost when they would be baptized with the Spirit. 
And then later on when Paul speaks about the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he speaks about it as a necessary requirement in order to be placed into the body of Christ. That you had to have the Spirit be baptized by the Spirit in order to be placed into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, that one body being the church, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit was necessary in order to place men and women into the body of Christ. And that did not happen until the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the birthday of the church. That's the first time that anybody was placed into the body of Jesus Christ. So the New Testament church is not the same as the Old Testament Israel, the Old Testament saints. But the God of the New Testament church is the same God of the Old Testament saints, right? And there are general principles that we can apply uh, to the people of God in all generations under all dispensations, whether we're talking about the Old Testament, Israel, or the New Testament church. And one of those general principles that crosses between the Testaments is the faithfulness of God and his love for his people. The faithfulness of God and his love for his people. God loves with an everlasting love. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God speaks to Israel and it's interesting when he speaks to Israel that he speaks to them during a time of great apostasy. This is during a time when they were being unfaithful, right before he sends them into the captivity in Babylon. But listen to what God says to Israel through Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah 31 and verse 3 says, The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Then later on in the, the same chapter, uh, God says in Jeremiah 31 and verse 35, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. God is declaring his un failing, everlasting love towards the nation of Israel. And this is a reminder to Israel that even though the people would be exiled into the land of Babylon and devastated, the, the nation, the land would be devastated, that God was not done with them as a nation. There was a commitment to them as a nation that stemmed from God's everlasting love. And if you're in Christ today, you have that same everlasting love that's given to you as a commitment. Same God, both Testaments, right? And God has an everlasting love towards you as a New Testament believer. The love of God in Jesus Christ. Flip over to Romans chapter 8, verse 38. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. Familiar passage, but worth reading again. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 38. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why does Paul have to say that? Why do you think Paul has to say that? It's because when we experience 
these different things, when we experience death or things to come or, you know, these other created things and they're coming against us, somehow we start to think that maybe God does not love me like he said he loved me. Maybe somehow God has backed off on this commitment that he's made toward me. When I'm experiencing persecution and tribulation and distress and famine and nakedness and peril and sword, maybe God's commitment has somehow softened towards me. Does God still love me with an everlasting love when I'm the one who's experiencing turmoil in my life? That's the, the question that people can often have. And this would have been an important reminder for Daniel to have as he's thinking about his people, Israel. If you look back at all that we read back in uh, chapter 11, the children of Israel were about to suffer with some extreme hardship. That's what we learn about in Daniel chapter 11. Back in Daniel chapter 11. Chapter 11, look at verse 36. Chapter 11, verse 36. It speaks about this king who is to come, verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And Daniel is here wondering, what will become of my people? And here God tells him that there's going to come a king who's going to do as he pleases with your people. That's what's going to happen to your people. He received this word that this end-time king, this antichrist, would come against them and do as he pleased. But that does not mean that God had abandoned his people. It does not mean that the nation would be destroyed or suffer extinction. God is still committed. He's committed himself to love and to this nation, just as God has committed himself to us in the church today. And we're just as dependent on that same everlasting love of God. Daniel chapter 12 demonstrates this commitment for us with an example of how God watches over his loved ones even during the time of tribulation. And that just sets us up for Daniel chapter 12. Take a look again at verse 1 of Daniel chapter 12. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Have you ever wondered how the nation of Israel survives the Holocaust that's to come? In uh, verse 1, it speaks about this time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. How do God's people, the, the Israelites of that day, how do they survive the Holocaust that's about to come upon them? Actually, how does Israel survive any of the Holocausts that have come upon them? If you think back in history, Egypt tried to wipe out the male infants of Israel in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 16. There, was a, there were numerous nations that attacked Israel during the Exodus, during their conquests, while they were a nation and even after their exile. Under the Persian kingdom, if you remember Haman, he sought to destroy all of the Jews. It was a planned genocide. Esther chapter 3 and verse 6, he planned to wipe out the entire nation of Israel. And we all know about, in more modern history, the Nazi Holocaust. Six million Jewish souls were claimed by state-sponsored genocide. Extermination camps in Poland had specially designed gassing facilities. In places like Auschwitz, the Nazi camps used pesticides that were designed to kill rats. 
And Charlotte Weiss, a Holocaust survivor, recalled that when she arrived at Auschwitz in 1944 with her sisters, they saw mountains of eyeglasses, shoes, and clothing that belonged to the victims. How did the Jewish people survive any of this? How did they survive any of this? We have at least one example of how Israel survived some of the attacks against her. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 36. Isaiah chapter 36. This is another attack against Israel. Chapter 36, look at verse 1. It says, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. So here we have this attack against the people of God. Drop down to verse 9. This is where you have the, the king's messenger who spoke for Sennacherib, Rabshakeh. Look at verse 9. It says, How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? So here again, they're, they're coming to destroy the land of Israel. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. How does Israel survive? Drop down to verse 36 in chapter 37. How does Israel survive? Verse 36, it says, Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. How does the, the Lord intervene? The Lord intervenes supernaturally. <laughs> supernaturally. And how many times has the Lord intervened supernaturally for the people of God and we don't even know about it? This is one case that we know about. That the Lord allowed his people to survive because there was a, a supernatural intervention. How many times does this happen and we don't even know about it? I remember uh, uh, MacArthur, he's often said, you know, I've, I've, I've never met a, a Girgashite, you know, a Moabite, an Elamite, but I've met a lot of Israelites. Why is that? Because God has preserved and protected his people. God has protected them. There's a reason why the Israelites are still here even till this day. And it's a wonder, and it's really to the glory and the praise of God. Uh, David Ben-Gurion was one of the, he's the first prime minister of the modern state of Israel. And he admitted to not even believing in the God of Scriptures, okay? He said he didn't even believe in the God of Scriptures. But listen to this. When Israel gained its independence, he said it would appear to be a miracle. A small nation of 700,000 persons at the outset of the campaign, there were only 640,000, stood up against six nations numbering 30 million. He says, I, I'm, I'm not even believing in the God of, of Scripture, but it would appear to be a miracle that we survived. And Scripture is clear that there is an unseen universe that is running parallel to ours, that intersects with ours, and that influences ours. There, there are angels as well as demons, but there are angels that are operating behind the curtain of what we can see. And back in Daniel chapter 10, if you remember, we were introduced to this idea of uh, demonic beings who took jurisdiction over entire empires. There was an evil demonic being called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Remember, we 
covered that earlier, as well as the, the prince of the kingdom of Greece. So there were these evil, angelic superpowers uh, that were overseeing entire nations. But guess what? Israel also had a supernatural, angelic superpower that was also overseeing Israel as well. And that's who we were introduced to back in chapter 10 and verse 13. Back in chapter 10 and verse 13 of uh, the book of Daniel, we're introduced to Michael, who was called one of the chief princes. Uh, then in verse 21, he was called Michael, your prince. Now, that's how he appears here in, uh, in Daniel uh, chapter 10. He appears there, but also appears in uh, chapter 12 again. But uh, just to, to you know, just kind of survey a little bit of where we see Michael, this uh, archangel, uh, showing up. Why don't you flip over to the book of Jude? D- don't ask me what chapter, okay? Book of Jude. Just to show you how, how we see Michael showing up in, in Scripture. Jude, right before the book of Revelation, all right? Start at verse 8. It says, Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You know, every time Michael shows up, it's like in a dispute. You know, there's some kind of contention that's going on. And here there's this dispute with the devil over the body of Moses. You know, somehow Satan might have been arguing to get the body in order to, to, you know, somehow prop it up or something. I'm not sure what he wanted to do with the body. But here he is arguing over the the body. And instead of Michael confronting him right there, you know, and going into an all-out, you know, warfare, he says, you know, I'm going to let the Lord deal with you right now. The Lord rebuke you. But Michael does not always hold back. Flip over to Revelation chapter 12. Next time we see Michael in Scripture, he's actually in a battle with Satan and his angels. Look at chapter 12 of Revelation in verse 7. It says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, that dragon being Satan. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Speaking about the the dragon and his angels. Angels. What we find here is that uh, Michael is engaged in this, this warfare, and who knows how many times he's been involved in the protection of Israel over the course of history. We may never know. All I'm saying here is that there is an unseen world that's working behind the scenes in ways that we cannot see where God is working for his people. And how many times do we doubt the love, the protection of God because we can't see it? And somehow we're, we're, we're questioning whether or not, is God really for us or not? Is God really with me? Does he know what I'm facing? Does he know what I'm experiencing? During this period of time, and back in uh, Daniel chapter 12, it speaks about at that time, that time being the time of great tribulation, it would have been easy for people to think that somehow God is no longer with us. That, that the people of God have been abandoned. For Daniel to even think that. You know, that that here I am, I'm praying about these people, I'm praying for them for weeks, and then God, you know, unveils this future history to me to tell me that they're headed for more tribulation, that it's going to get even worse. God, are you going to fulfill your promises or not? And what God reminds us is that, don't worry, behind the scenes, there's a lot more going on than what you can see. Don't, Don't doubt the Lord just because you can't see him work. 
if you can't, uh, I've heard it often said, if you can't see his hand to trust his heart, <laughs> you know, that we, we trust in the Lord, we trust in the promises of God, we walk by what? Faith, not by sight. You know, we're not going to see everything, but God is still working behind the scenes and our God is for us. Who knows how many times angels have worked behind the scenes on our behalf? Who knows? Who knows? But during this period of tribulation, we find that the archangel Michael will stand guard over the children of Israel and do battle for them once again. And actually, I won't even get into it yet. <laughs> I'll save it for, for next time. But uh, uh, what my point is here is that God uses angels to perform his will on the earth. And this is one of the ways that God has chosen to guard his people. Quietly, imperceptibly, unnoticed, God is orchestrating all things, visible and invisible, to achieve his appointed ends. Incredible to think about. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 says, Are they not all, speaking about the angels, ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Isn't this what God does? That he sends out his ministering spirits? You can't see that. When's the last time you've you, you, you seen him send out his ministering spirits? You've never seen that. But God is working behind the scenes, orchestrating all these things for his own appointed ends. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. You know, the, 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 the youngest, the smallest among you. Don't despise them. Why? For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For, for those that, that feel like they're, they're you know, pushed to the side, that they're overlooked, do you know that you have angels in heaven that are watching out for you? you know, and, and again, it just reminds us of the love and the care of our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father, they continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I've heard MacArthur say that you know, when the Father's faith wrinkles with concern that the angels go, go out and, and, uh, you know, immediately on the, uh, in, in order to uh, address the need. It's like they continually see the face of my Father, watching the face of, my, of the Father for the indication that it's time to move, it's time to act. God is working behind the scenes and God is working for us. Do you trust in the love of God? God is a God who loves you. He's a God who cares for you. You know, there's a song that uh, we used to sing, you know, all night, all day. Angels watching over me, my Lord, right? <laughs> God is doing something behind the scenes in ways that we can't even understand. God is guarding his people. That's point number one. God is guarding his people. Now, at that time, again, in verse one, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And why does he arise? Because God tells him to arise. God tells us it's time to act, and God is watching over us even through supernatural means. Number two, it doesn't mean that the people of God are not distressed. Look at the second half of verse one. He will arise, and there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. They're distressed, but they're not destroyed. <laughs> distressed, but not destroyed. We've pointed this out before, but the kind of distress that we're talking about here is a distress like nothing the world has ever seen before. And that's made clear by the, the language that's used. And there can only be one such time. If it's a time like no other time, that means it's only one. Uh, Jeremiah 30 in verse 7 says, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. 
He will be saved from it. Distressed, but not destroyed. He will be saved. Joel 2 describes that day. Uh, when Joel says in uh, Joel 2 and verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. And again, there can only be one day like this. And Matthew 24, 21 speaks about the same day. Jesus speaks about it. He says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. There's coming a day unlike any other. And there are good reasons to believe that the church will not be present on earth in that day. Again, like I said, I'm just trying to help build some framework here. Church, there's good reason to believe that you will not be there for this day. For example, this day is specifically said to be the time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's distress. In Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, which indicates that Israel is specifically being dealt with during this time. This is a time for Israel. And again, for what purpose? To refine Israel, to bring Israel back, for Israel to repent, to draw Israel to himself. This is what God is doing during this time. So it's a time that's specifically set up for the nation of Israel to draw them back to himself. In addition to that, the church is said not to be destined for wrath. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, but that's exactly how the tribulation judgments are described as a time of wrath, a period of wrath that's going to fall upon the earth. In Revelation 15 that speaks about the time period of tribulation, in chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. You know, the, 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 the plagues of the book of Revelation are described as the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when the church at Philadelphia is addressed in Revelation 3 and verse 10, Revelation 3 and verse 10, it says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth he does not simply say that they will be kept from the testing but they will be kept from the hour of testing from that time period of testing that they would be rescued from that that time period and how can you be saved from something that's com coming upon the entire world you know, the entire world is going to experience this. And it says, you will be saved from that hour. You know, the way to be saved from something that happens on the entire world is that you're not on the world. You're not in the world. And there's good reason to believe that the church will not be present in the world for this period of testing, which is to engulf the entire earth. But that does not mean that we escape all tribulation, right? As, as a church, we don't escape tribulation believers don't escape it you know jesus said in uh, john 16 and verse 33 in the world you have tribulation but take courage i have overcome the world but in the world you're going to have tribulation believers will be persecuted they will bear reproach they will be oppressed they will suffer harm and if jesus went to to the cross and i'm his follower then where am i heading i'm headed to the cross right Pick up your cross and do what? Follow me. 
If you're following Jesus, what do you have? You have a cross that you're carrying. We're, we're not going to escape this life without scars. We will have scars. I, I love the poem by uh, Amy Carmichael. She says, hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archer spent. Lean me against the tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compass me I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can it be? Can he have followed far who has no wound and no scar? You're not going to get out of this life without scars. If, if we're following after Christ, we will bear his scars. You know, Paul says that I bear in my body the marks of Christ Jesus. We'll, we'll bear the scars, and they're not going to get out of life without scars if you're following closely behind the master, right? Pierced are the feet that follow me. John 15 Jesus says in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also what? Persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And all I want to say here is that the goal of the Christian life is not to escape any and all persecution. That's not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of your Christian, Christian life is to be faithful. The goal of your Christian life is to look like Jesus. That's what we're to do. But we're not going to escape without any persecution, without facing any kind of distress. And the master knows the path that he's chosen for all of us. The people of God will face distress we will be persecuted but i want you to notice something else it says the people of god are also rescued it says uh your people everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued this is a, a specific reference to the the children of israel but it has application for all who have their names written in the book and this is what's more important than missing the the tribulation okay what, what's more important than missing the tribulation? It's having your name in the book. <laughs> having your name in the book. And this is talking about people who will live during the tribulation. They will live through the tribulation. Don't miss that. They're going to live through the tribulation, but their names are still written in the book. And that's what's the most important. You know, don't, don't, don't think that, you know, the goal of my Christianity, again, is just to avoid tribulation. That's not the goal of your Christianity. You know, your goal is to be faithful. And what's most important is that my name is written in the book, regardless of what kind of tribulation I face, what kind of distress I face. I need my name in the book. And these people will experience the worst of all times in human history. We're talking about a people who come to know the Lord in the midst of wrath being poured out on the world. In the midst of all the seals being broken, the horns being blown, the bowls of wrath being poured out on the earth. There's going to be worldwide devastation, plagues upon mankind, demonic forces being unleashed, the Antichrist on the loose. But in the midst of all of this 
there will be a people who will come to know their God and they will be rescued and they will have their name written in the book, written in the book. This is, this is wonderful. How will they be rescued? Just a, another reminder of the, 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 the goodness of, of God, even during the time of, of tribulation. Flip over to Revelation chapter 12. We looked at it earlier, but just to, to show you, just an evidence of God's kindness, even during this time of, of tribulation. Take a look at verse 6. It says, then the, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. This, this is talking about Israel. A place prepared by God for this woman, the woman being Israel. So that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Do you know what that equals? Three and a half years. Three and a half years of during the, the tribulation, during this time in the tribulation. During this three and a half years, the woman will be rescued having a place prepared by God. And verse 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Here we have Israel being rescued there's a a place of of respite even during the middle of this tribulation that these people of God were still going to be rescued but much more than being delivered from physical harm their names are written in the book (laughs) their names are in the book and those whose names are found written in the book are those who will eventually be saved and what is this book glad you asked look at Revelation chapter 13 look at verse 6 This is all during the same period of time. It's talking about the the time of the tribulation. So the book that's being spoken about back in Daniel is the book that's being spoken about in Revelation. Look at uh, chapter 13. Look at verse 6. It says, And he, speaking about this Antichrist, opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven, was also given to him to make war with the saints to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. What's the book? It's the book of life. It's the book that that indicates that you have eternal life. Look at chapter 17. Chapter 17, Revelation. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. It says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Flip over to chapter 20, verse 15, just in case you have any questions about what this book is. Start at verse 14. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, 
he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's a book. And this book indicates whether or not you have eternal life. And my question for you, and like I said, this is kind of a, an introduction, but my question for you is, is your name in the book? Has your name been written in the book? The Bible speaks a lot about people who say that they know the Lord, but the Lord does not commit himself to them. In John 17 and verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How do you know your name's written in the book? It's whether or not you have a relationship with the Lord. If you have a relationship with the Lord, your name's in the book, and the Lord knows you. It's indicating that he knows you. But if your name is not found written in the book, it indicates that he does not know you. The knowledge that he has, it's a knowledge of relationship. When the Bible speaks about, about knowledge, it speaks about relationship more than just, uh, you know, information. You know, I can have a lot of information, you know, about my favorite, you know, football player, basketball player, but it doesn't mean if I show up, you know, at their front door that they're going to let me in because I have no relationship. I may know a lot about you, but I don't, I don't know you. There's a lot of people who know a lot about the Lord, but they don't know him. They don't have a relationship with him. Accuracy of information does not mean an intimacy of relationship. You need to know the Lord. And that's what Jesus points out in Matthew chapter 15, verse 7, where he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. You have a lot to say about me, but you don't, you don't know me. You've never given me your heart. I don't have your heart. And there's a lot of people that can honor the Lord with their, their lips, but their, their hearts are far away. Jesus knows what's on the inside, right? He knows, he knows who you are. In John chapter 2 and verse 24, Jesus was with a group of people who professed a commitment to him. But it says that Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. God knows, God knows who we are. He knows what's on the inside. And the question is, is does Jesus have your heart? Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your what? In your heart. The God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart... A person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. So the question again is, does Jesus have your heart? And when you show up at the door of heaven, will Jesus be able to say that that one's mine? No, they're, they're in the book. <laughs> they, they belong to me. I have a relationship with them. And if you belong to, to Christ, the question is, who's going to bring a charge against you, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's the one who has loved us. Back again in, in Romans chapter 8, he's given himself for us. And then when we know that 
We belong to him. We don't have to question his love for us, even when times become difficult. Again, the question is, is does the Lord have your heart? And there's so much more that we'll take a look at in Daniel as uh, we come back to this uh, chapter uh, next week. But um, uh, just as a, a word of uh, just encouragement you know, for you, that just because you might be going through you know, difficulties, challenges, distresses, tribulation, persecution in your life, uh, does not mean that God is not imperceptibly behind the scenes and significantly working on your behalf. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for uh, this, your word. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, you, Lord, would be honored and glorified. Uh, Father, we uh, pray that uh, you would help us to remember your commitment to us. And Father, in the, the same way you made a commitment to, uh, to Israel and, and Daniel held on to those words. He held on to those promises and he was looking to see the fulfillment of them. Uh, even though the fulfillment would be held off for, for years and years. Uh, Father, but he could still hold on to your word. And Father, I pray that uh, you would help us as those who have your word. Uh, Father, that we would hold on to your precious promises. Uh, Father, that we would not doubt the, the love that you have for us. That even though we might face uh, persecution and affliction, uh, Father, uh, uh, the things present and things to come, Father, I pray that we would not doubt that uh, there is a God who's loved us, who's loved us with an everlasting love, who's committed himself to us with a, uh, with a steadfast love, a loving kindness that endures forever. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd help us to uh, remember uh, your precious promises towards each one of us, and uh, Father, that you would be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.